0: we are back. Uh, We have not previously talked about uh, the 400-year-old mystery, mystery in quotes, surrounding Tycho Brahe or Tycho, as his name I think properly is pronounced. Sorry to note the story with Dateline Prague that someone's digging up the astronomer to attempt to decide what it is that killed him. Is this really necessary? By the way, I believe Mr. McMillan has in our archives one of our favorite guests that we had who uh, talked about Johannes Kepler. That was our interview with James A. Connor. His book was titled Kepler's Witch. But of course, uh, as you may or may not know, Kepler was a, a student or an assistant to Tycho Brahe, who was the last great astronomer who didn't use a telescope. He used precise measuring devices to, uh, to locate exactly where in the sky all the planets had moved. And it was his data, which was very accurate, that allowed Kepler to then uh, work out the laws of planetary orbits. Pretty much a red-letter day in astronomic history. Tycho was quite a colorful figure, and I can see that's probably driving some of the interest in him. He sported a gold and silver prosthetic nose having lost the tip of his real nose in a duel. There was this story that he apparently died because he didn't leave the king's table to relieve himself because that wasn't done, and that his bladder burst. People don't really believe this story. And frankly, they can dig him up and look all they want. They're not going to be able to figure out whether his bladder burst or not, at least not based on the chunks I saw on the footage of what's left of poor Tico. According to the article by Dan Belevsky in the New York Times, they said the questions surrounding Brahe's death have stumped historians for centuries and leading the quest for the truth is Jens Velev, a self-styled Danish Indiana Jones and archaeologist at the Aarhus University in Denmark. You know what? Anyone who's a self-styled Indiana Jones of anything is a guy that you really shouldn't be following. Mark my words on this. Indiana Jones is an inane action figure in a really bad movie by Steven Spielberg. Actually, series of movies. And, okay, please, if you you like the whole Indiana Jones series, don't don't send me any hate mail, okay? It's got one good scene where the guy comes out and starts wielding the scimitar, and Indiana Jones reaches out, pulls out a gun, and shoots him. And the reason that is a memorable scene is because Harrison Ford thought of it, not the director whose movies, in my opinion, are a disgrace. And thank God we already covered the whole opinion thing. I don't know. I, I just, I, I'm just disturbed by the fact they're saying, well, scientists will study Tico's teeth to determine his diet. Do we really need to know what his diet was? Hey, apparently he ate a lot of pork. All right, another science or technology-related story I find disturbing. The government of President Evo Morales of Bolivia has reached a deal with a Japanese consortium to begin research on industrializing the vast reserves they have of lithium. Turns out, lithium's, turns out that Bolivia's salt flats are home to more than one-third of the world's lithium. In recent months, the Bolivian government has entertained delegations from Russia, Iran, South Korea, and other nations seeking to gain an inside track on producing the lithium electric car batteries of the future article notes that since Bolivia is unable to develop the resource on its own, and the Japanese group's rights are not exclusive, the wooing is likely to continue. This article disturbs me because on a trip to Bolivia many years ago, I had a chance to visit the Salar de Ayuni, which is kind of the Bolivian equivalent of the Bonneville Salt Flats. You can see it on satellite photos of South America as a big white dot. It's an old dried-out lake bed, and I guess the the minerals and the rock around it had lithium in it, and they drained down into the salt that's left. It was one of the most remarkable places I've ever visited, at least remarkable places I visited that you've probably never heard of, dear listener. But imagine a 70-mile plain as white as snow and as flat as a highway. It's a very, very remarkable place, and I hope they don't go in there and tear it up for the sake of lithium batteries. As sympathetic as I may be to the electric car, it does have a role to play in our future. It uh, is not the answer to the world's energy problems or our transportation problems. The problem with an electric car is you've got to generate the electricity somewhere else. And unless we find an environmentally friendly way to do that, it's just you know the equivalent of a very, very long tailpipe. In other words, the emissions are coming out in a location apart from where the car is, but they're still coming out. I've also been sitting on a story which is not disturbing but is rather curious by Madeline McCurry-Schmidt writing in the California Aggie newspaper. done some research done on a small island in the Aleutian chain off of Alaska. The island was Kasatochi. It was a wildlife refuge for sea lions, seals, and seabirds and it was being studied rather intensely for a wave of earthquakes it was having in, the August, in August of 2008. Seismic readings from instruments on nearby islands helped scientists to narrow the activity down to that particular island, and they realized they better get people off of it, which they did. And talk about close calls. They had to commandeer a local fishing boat, which volunteered to pick up uh, people on the island, and they left on the afternoon of August 7th. Thirty minutes later, the volcano exploded. Reportedly, hot ash tens of meters deep fell on the island, and everything died. This article reports that two summers later, scientists went out to take a look and discovered that, well, it's making a comeback. One year after the eruption, they found a centipede, a spider, several beetles, and some ticks. The majority of those survivors were on a cliff system that hadn't been hit directly by ash. By this summer, uh, a lot of new species had arrived. They found new spiders and colonies of arthropods called springtails, which were apparently coming in on driftwood and plants were appearing after the explosion. Ryegrass was spreading in areas where the ash has now eroded away. They noted that despite this apparent catastrophic eruption, some organisms were able to survive, and now they're leading the comeback. This chance to watch species repopulate uh, an island is a kind of a new opportunity for biologists, allow them to watch in real time the process that uh, Darwin, Charles Darwin proposed uh, when he studied finches on the Galapagos and wondered how they got there and how they evolved. Madeline McCurry-Schmidt notes in her article that uh, Darwin saw the Galapagos and worked backwards to figure out the origin of those species, and with the island of Casatochi, biologists will get to see uh, colonization in action and see the before, uh, while Darwin saw the after. All right, well, this is, we're heading to make this a science section, so let's talk about uh, the world record for the, um, the ultimate sleeping beauty report last September in New Scientist magazine, based on the work of Casey Hubert from the geosciences group at Newcastle University, UK, notes that uh, they found a bacteria from the Arctic sea floor that apparently has the longest life cycle of any known organism. It had been hibernating 100 million years. The scientists were looking for organisms that flourish in the cold but are killed at higher temperatures. Instead, they found the opposite, a completely unexpected class of heat-loving microbes, thermophiles, that had been embedded in the sediment as spores and only germinate as the temperature approaches 50 degrees Celsius, which is, I think, 122 Fahrenheit. They sequenced the genetic material on these heat-loving organisms and found out that they're closely related to bacteria from ecosystems in the warm, oxygen-depleted depths of oceanic crusts or subsurface petroleum reserves. What were they doing in the freezing sediments of the Arctic? Well, they think that they were uh, thrust up there by rising currents out of their deep, hot niche and into the cold Arctic seawater, where they lie dormant. Sediment does bury them, and eventually they get down to where the temperatures are hot enough for them to germinate, but the estimates are this could take up to 100 million years. I think the numbers on this are a little shaky, but it certainly seems true that they're waiting out a very long life cycle. And also from the unexpected biology uh, category, we have this story. Researcher Ren Zheng and colleagues at South China Agricultural University in Guangzhou grew pairs of tomato plants in pots. They allowed some pairs to form these fungal mycorrhizal networks between their roots and compared them to controls. The plants that were connected this way are able to exchange nutrients and water, which apparently staves off the effects of droughts. But Zhang wanted to know if the network had any other function. Well, apparently they do. They sprayed one plant in each pair with a a fungus which causes early blight in these tomato plants. 65 hours later, they infected the second plant and observed how well it coped. Well, the plants that were sharing this uh, fungal network were less likely to develop the blight. And when they did, the symptoms were milder. They were also able to activate defensive genes and enzymes. Apparently, the first plant was signaling its neighbors says Zhang. He's dubbed the uh, mycorrhiza the internet of plant communities. Although nobody knows how they pass signals back and forth, these networks could be more reliable and efficient than other plant-to-plant signaling systems. These include chemicals released into the air to warn neighbors of impending attacks, which uh, Zhang blocked, in this case, by encasing the tomato plants in airtight bags. Airborne signals are slow and depend on the weather. Roots, can also release chemicals, although they don't usually travel very far," said Suzanne Simard at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. The research is a milestone in our understanding of communication between plants. She pointed out too that intensively farmed plants don't have these mycorrhiza. With access to ample fertilizer and water, they don't bother to grow them. As a result, the plants may be bis- missing out on some health benefits. Dr. Simard, along with Dan Durall at the University of British Columbia have shown that these mycorrhizal networks can be enormous. In 2009, they found a network weaving its way through an entire Canadian forest, with each tree connected to dozens of its neighbors over distances of 90 feet. Said Dural, it's a very robust system that could allow for the movement of signal proteins over many meters. Mycorrhizal networks even tie together plants of different species, which means different species might be able to communicate with each other. Which is pretty interesting, don't you think? Something else we have to do, bring somebody on from the plant pathology department. I mean, as a physician, I'm sort of aware of what we, what we know currently about uh, our immune systems. I mean, we're under attack all the time from bacteria and fungi, and we have ways to fight them off, and plants and fungi do too, but I don't know how they do it. So I want to find out, and when we do, you'll be the first to hear about it, probably live. I can shed a little bit of light on it from another article that was in New Scientist magazine, which noted that caterpillars can be outsmarted by the tobacco plants that they eat. Noted the article that when the tobacco hornworm caterpillar is chomping away on its uh, favorite food, the tobacco leaves are converting molecules released by the damaged parts of the plant into chemicals that call in predatory bugs. Article notes that, like many plants, when tobacco is damaged by hungry herbivores or otherwise, it gives off chemicals called green leaf volatiles. These SOS molecules protect the plant by attracting predators that eat the herbivores. Said Ian Baldwin of the Max Planck Institute for Chemical Ecology in Germany, in effect, the caterpillar calls the police on itself. He suggests that crops could be genetically modified to release an improved signal as a defense against pests. That's a technology that's got its ups and downs. We've talked about that before and we'll do so again. But uh, how about this item? Procter & Gamble, along with a lot of other manufacturers, are trying to make products that uh, the public uh, would like because they're more green, they're more environmentally friendly. Problem is, some of them don't work too well. Article by... Mireya Navarro in the New York Times a few months ago noted uh, that the website for Cascade Dishwater Detergents had some uh, bad reviews on it. One person wrote in, My dishes were dirtier than before they were washed. And said about the Dishwater Detergent, It was horrible, and I won't buy it again. Another consumer wrote, This is the worst product ever made for use as a dishwashing detergent. Apparently responding to laws that took a... It took effect in 17 states last July. The nation's detergent makers reformulated their products to reduce what had been a crucial ingredient, phosphates. They reduced them to just a trace. While phosphates help prevent dishes from spotting in the wash cycle, they've long ended up in lakes and reservoirs where they stimulate algae growth that then deprives the plants and fish of oxygen as rather than being limited by phosphate, the growth of plants then becomes limited becomes limited by oxygen. So reducing phosphate in detergents is a, uh, is a desirable goal. The trouble is the current formulations uh, are just not panning out. Which underscores the fact that in the future if we want to be more green, there's going to be some trade-offs. Whether it's hybrid cars or solar panels, environmentally friendly alternatives can cost more, be less convenient, and they can prove less effective. Of course, this article mentions that among complaints uh, from consumers, one woman said that that she now has to do a quick wash of the dishes before she puts them in the dishwasher to make sure they come out clean. Don't you do that anyway? I mean, you at least kind of rinse off the big chunks, don't you? I mean, I don't know. That's what I've always done. (laughs) I'm no expert on dishwashing, believe you me. Although one of my duties as a student when I had a part-time job at UC Davis was to wash the glassware that uh, housed fruit flies in the genetics lab. Still got a scar on my index finger to prove it. Aww. Very funny, Mr. McMillan. But uh, seriously, we all have to wash dishes, and this, this, is, this is an important thing. We really don't want phosphates out in the environment. They're a fantastic fertilizer. And, you know, we talked a few weeks back about how uh, Diane Feinstein wants to clean up Lake Tahoe. I mean, if you want to turn Lake Tahoe in an algae bed... I think the best way you could do it would be just to add a little phosphate. I mean, many years ago, Isaac Asimov uh, wrote a whimsical piece uh, trying to analyze what was the rate determining nutrient out in uh, lakes and streams in nature. He decided it was phosphate. That was the molecule that was hardest to come by, but necessary for life. But this article cites a non nonprofit group in Oakland that reportedly helps women form environmentally minded cooperatives and trains house cleaners, and they note that uh, that uh, there's a myth, said Yvette Melendez, that uh, to be clean, it has to shine or smell or make a lot of bubbles. She's described as a trainer for women's action to gain economic security. She says that products like vinegar, baking soda, or newer house or newer cleansers work just as well as traditional items if applied in the proper mix and quantities. I don't know, she may have a point. I know that... Uh, That things don't have to bubble to get you clean. The uh, detergents that are used in dishwashers are notorious for not putting out a whole lot of bubbles, and yet they clean very well. So I guess consumer education does have a role to play in this. Uh, They could do the same thing for your laundry detergent, but they don't. Most people, when they're doing the wash, like to look down and see some bubbles. Then you really think things are getting clean, don't you? Well, not necessarily. When they formulate laundry detergents, they they work out how to get clothes effectively clean, and then they they add extra ingredients to make sure there's some bubbles so the consumer's convinced it's doing its job. This, dear listener, explains uh, the results of an experiment that I'm sure you've conducted in the past, which is, gee, I'm out of dishwasher detergent. Why don't I just use some laundry detergent? When you then reclaim your kitchen from the siege it underwent of bubbles, you no doubt concluded that the two were not interchangeable. All right, final item of the segment. It turns out that uh, having more brains isn't always good. I think that's been well established by those who seek success in the conservative wing of the Republican Party. But In this case, we're talking about bats. Some scientists decided to test whether bats that migrate have smaller brains than their stay-at-home cousins because they wouldn't be able to afford the luxury of lugging large, energetically expensive brains on long journeys. People had previously noted that uh, migratory birds tend to be more bird-brained than similar species that don't migrate, but nobody was sure about bats. Well, they took a look, and it turns out that, uh, well, it's true. Migratory bats have smaller brains than non-migratory ones. There needs to be some applying of the same principle to morbidly obese people on aircraft. But I digress. We need to take a break, so let's do that. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned.